As Pastor Barry mentioned, we'll be jumping in on a short series called One Fear. And so uh, as he read um, from Psalm 130, that'll be our text this morning. So if you have your Bible handy, I invite you to open it back up. That's where we will be. In many ways, I feel like Pastor Barry said it all. There's nothing further to be said that God is to be feared. But nevertheless, it's my privilege with you this morning to study God's word. So let's go to him in prayer before we begin. Lord, as your people, we recognize our own weakness, our own uh, fragility. Lord, I pray that we would find confidence and courage in your word. Lord, that we wouldn't cower from uh, the life that you've called us to, but Father, that we would be strengthened and emboldened by it. And so as we, uh, Lord, begin to study your word, I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us. Father, that your word would penetrate deep into our hearts. Father, I have thoughts and things prepared, but Lord, I pray that your word would transcend all. Father, that your timeless, ageless word, Lord, would give us life and give us hope in these days, I pray. Amen. We all have fears. I know you do, because I do. And if I'm like you, then surely you do as well. Sometimes our fears are rooted in an experience. Sometimes they're rooted in hypothetical, like maybe you have this irrational fear that really is not very likely, but you're afraid of it anyway because uh, that would be terrifying. And, and that's, that's okay. Fear is a, is a normal part of life. It's an interesting thing because fear so often will drive a lot of what we do, whether it's a hypothetical fear, something that's not very likely to happen, or whether it's as simple as a spider. Uh, you, you're driven by your fears one way or another. And one time I was about grade two or grade three, I had a fear of um, not of water, but of fish in the water. I could handle fish out of the water, but I couldn't handle fish in the water if I was in the water with them. And I had this fear that fish ate feet. And so I was worried that my feet would get eaten. And as a boy, this was a challenge for my parents. And so one day we, as we did oftentimes um, on, on summer days, we'd go to the lake with our, with our boat. And as I was getting ready to go in, I liked being on the water as long as I didn't have to go in the water. My dad took it easy on me, right? But as I was getting ready to go onto the, the flotation device on the water, my mom pushed me into the water to help me overcome my fear. Uh, and I can tell you it, it eventually worked later in life, but in the moment, it definitely did not work. So I've chosen different uh, fear-conquering strategies with my kids. But um, nevertheless, my mom had good intentions. But it's an interesting framework for how we handle our fear, because sometimes we believe that if we just simply face our fear, we'll, we'll get over it. But you'll quickly find that there'll be another fear. And maybe there will be fears that you can't overcome. And fear drives, as I said, a lot of what we do. So whether your fear is spiders or swimming with fish, or whether it's uh, being exposed, or whether it's uh, commitment, or whether it's being uh, vulnerable with somebody, whatever your fear is, we handle it um, in, in such a way where, generally speaking, if we can manage it, we're okay. If we can manage our fear and bring comfort to ourselves by not doing those things, then we'll just carry on. And if no one finds out that little Andrew was afraid of fish, then it'll be fine, because fish, I learned, don't actually bite your feet. But we like to seek comfort. Our text this morning, though, in Psalm 130, we'll be focusing primarily on verses three and four, also speaks of fear. And I'm, I'm convinced it's a different kind of fear than a fear of fish or a fear of spiders or a fear of any, any other earthly thing. Our verses are, verse three and four, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness of sin that you might be feared. So what does it mean then to fear the Lord? I think there's some component 
to which this will remain a mystery to us. And I don't mean mystery in the sense that we just have to guess or that we'll, we'll never understand what it means, so we shouldn't try. No, I think we should try. I think the scriptures do tell us what the fear of the Lord means. When I say mystery, what I mean is we will maybe never fully understand it until we're united with the Lord himself. We will, keep, we will continue to be learning what it means to fear the Lord. But throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, there are hundreds of references to this idea of fear. Fear of other things, most of them are to do with the fear of the Lord. There are hundreds of them. And oftentimes, most of them, the fear of the Lord is described as a a posture of worship. It's a posture of approaching God the Father with reverence. And it's in contrast to something else. And so what you'll see is fear not something or someone, but fear the Lord or fear me. An example of this is in Deuteronomy chapter six, where God is... uh, giving the law, giving, giving instructions, commandments to his people, Israel, they're, um, they're getting ready for, for life as God's people. And in Deuteronomy 6, God through Moses says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after or fear other gods, the gods of the people who are around you for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. He'll also say, don't, don't intermarry, don't serve their gods, don't, don't be like them lest you fall away from the fear of me to the fear of other things. Don't run after anything else but to me. And as we see throughout the history of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel had, had highs and lows with that, didn't they? There were times where they feared the Lord, things were going really well, and there were times where as soon as they began to compromise their fear and their love for the Lord, that they began to go astray and the Lord would give them up to their sinful desires. He would give them up to their rebellion. But the call, nevertheless, is for God's people, which includes you and I, to fear the Lord. An example in the New Testament of this, where Jesus says, fear not, but fear me, is when he's preparing his disciples for the work of the ministry. And as he's doing this, he tells them, he's giving them instructions, he's giving them giving them a heads up. In other words, know before you go. He's giving them all of the the, the heads up on things that'll happen. He says, you'll be hated. He says, people will hate you. They hated me. They may close their door on you. You may be hungry. There will be persecution, slander, and opposition that comes. It is a high cost to be my disciple. And he says this in Matthew chapter 10, do not fear those who kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, don't fear them. Don't fear what people could do to you, any kind of earthly thing or earthly authority, but fear me. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, Jesus goes on? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, fear not, fear me. I will be with you. Or what about in in the book of Mark chapter four, it's recorded elsewhere, but in Mark chapter four, it's a scene which you you know well where the disciples and Jesus are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee one evening sailing across and they're overcome by an unexpected windstorm on the Sea of Galilee, which is prone to some pretty significant storms. But with wind howling and waves crashing, Jesus somehow um, is able to sleep. And so he's in the stern of the boat and Mark's gospel records it as him, him sleeping in the, in the stern of the boat with his head on a cushion. And his disciples are completely terrified of their life. They're in peril. 
Waves are crashing over. The wind is howling. The, wa- the boats are taking on water. And what happens is uh, uh, they approach Jesus and they go, we're doomed. We're terrified for our lives. But they come to Jesus, they wake him up and they tell him what's happening. It says this in verse 39 of Mark 4. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this then that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, it started with them fearing for their lives. Their their, their lives were in the hands of the storm. I would be terrified. If you've ever been on a boat in the open water, even here, it's terrifying. You fear for your life at times. And this was the case for them. They, They fear that their lives were in the hands of this storm, which of course was out of control. But in a moment, no sooner did the waves stop and the winds stilled, were they very afraid, as Mark tells us. Their fear was directed from the storm to the hands of Jesus Almighty who was in their midst. He reoriented their fear, fear not, but fear me instead. The disciples neglected and Jesus so graciously reminded them time and time again that their lives were in the hands of him. So was the storm. And every other human authority and power is in the hands of God Almighty. They had no reason to fear but God himself. And so the fear of the Lord is a different kind of fear. It has to be. Because if the Bible calls us to fear the Lord, surely that can't mean to, to cower away, to, to recoil from something that makes you afraid. Fear of the Lord in the scripture is something quite different. It can't mean the same thing. I read John Piper, and he's been very instrumental in my life and how I think and how I, um, and how I live as a Christian. And so I hope you find help with these words. It comes from his book, The Pleasures of God. And in it, he addresses this same question. What does it mean to fear the Lord? How do we do this? And he paints a picture of, of let's suppose it's you with a group of people exploring a, a, uh, an unknown glacier in northern Greenland in the middle of winter. And it's a spectacular view. It's marvelous. It's wonderful. When out of nowhere comes a snowstorm where suddenly what, what began as great joy and great awe turned into sheer terror where, where you were moments and inches away from just being blown off the edge of one of these cliffs. But he says that while the storm threatens your life, you notice a little a, a crack in the ice big enough for you and your group to find refuge in from the storm. And he describes you watching the rest of the storm with a kind of trembling pleasure from this cleft as you watch the power and the terrible might of this storm blow over you while you're safe. And he says these words, I hope you find them helpful. At first, there was a fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. But then you found a refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such a power. You don't want to be in the storm. You want to be freed from it. He goes on and says, the fear of God is what was left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. You see, the difference between fearing God and fearing anything else is that fearing anything else is oftentimes circumstantial. 
Even if it's a real threat or a hypothetical threat, the response is to, is to cower, is to find safety, is to avoid those things, is to run away from whatever it is that we perceive will threaten us. And we do this, we've gotten quite good at it. We like our comfort. I don't like being afraid. The difference though, when we talk about fearing the Lord is it's not a being scared of God and running away from God, it's the exact opposite of running to God, running to the safety and the security and the shelter of his strength. The same strength though, that brings these storms, the same strength that brings judgment. And so as we go, I have two kind of hooks we'll hang our, our thoughts on with this morning together and I'm calling them two essentials. They're two essential conversations that I think we need when we discuss the fear of the Lord. They are God's goodness and our worship. We can't neglect either of those two. Well, it's a big conversation, there's more. We could spend a year on this topic, but there's at least two things I wanna discuss together. That's God's goodness and our worship. Our verse, our verses Say, O Lord, if, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I think God's goodness answers the why question. Why should we fear the Lord? The simple answer is his goodness, that God is fundamentally, he's essentially good. It's not that God is good sometimes, but God is good. God is also defined good for us. God's also powerful. And he ought to be both. If God was good, but not powerful, that's just basically wishful. That's just hopeful. But if God is powerful, but not good, well, then we should be, we should be terrified of a God who has this kind of power over the entire universe, but who's not for us, he's against us. But in fact, God is both good and God is powerful. And he displays his goodness and his glory through his power. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, uh, his, his famous work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you'll know that uh, he, he pictures in this land of Narnia, he pictures Jesus Christ as, as a lion called Aslan. And there's a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where there's these kids, and there's Lucy and Susan and there's Peter, and they approach, they approach uh, Mr. Beaver, and they're asking, they're trying to understand who this, who this lion, who this king is of Narnia. They've not met him yet. And so as in their conversations back and forth, they learn he's a lion. They say, oh, is he, is he, he's a safe lion, is he? Is he a safe lion if he's a king? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. After all, he's a lion. He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good. You know, our God is a good God. And because God is good, he necessarily will judge sin. And I think this is a difficult doctrine for so many people inside the church and outside the church that we serve a God who judges sin. And we fear that judgment. We fear being exposed. We fear the consequences that come because they are indeed horrific. You can read what happens what, when, when, when the uh, final trumpet sounds in the book of Revelation. You can read what the ends of the enemy are. You can read what the ends of the, of the wicked are in scripture, and I tell you, it is horrific. But people, both maybe inside the church and outside the church, maybe you even heard these arguments or these contentions against God. They'll say, well, if God is so loving and if God is so good, can he just lay off? Can he just let stuff go? Can't he just let it slide? I think some people would be far more comfortable if God were just a genie who's interested in, in giving them good things that they think they need. 
They aren't interested in the God of the Bible. Let me ask you this. If you were watching hockey on TV and the referee began to just let stuff go and not call anything, that would infuriate you. It would infuriate me. Is that referee being good and letting anything go? Anything goes, all the rules are just gone. No, it's not a good referee at all. Or what about a judge in a court of law whose job is to uphold the standard and, and, the, and the peace and justice? Where if the, if the jury's off to the side and they've deliberated for days and days and they come back and they issue their verdict that the accused is indeed guilty and the judge says, I'm gonna let this slide. That's not, that's not justice. That is in fact injustice. But to enforce, whether it's rules of a game, whether it's a, a court of law or the justice system is to necessarily condemn and enforce and punish wrongdoing. God is necessarily just over sin. He will judge. A few weeks ago, Pastor Paul, in our study in the book of 2 Thessalonians, we looked at in chapter one, when Christ returns. And here's how it's described with flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The thought of God's judgment should terrify you, should rightly terrify you and should rightly terrify me because your wickedness, your despicable sin up against God's holiness is a terrible thing and deserves judgment. So God judges sin. What's more though, is that God graciously saves Sinners. It's not that there's two parts of God and if you get him on a good day, he'll judge you and if you get him or a bad day, he'll judge you or if you get him on a good day, he'll love you. No, this is part of who God is. God is just and he is good. Everything he does is because he is good, including his judgment. But he also pulls his children. He pulls those who fear him out of the fiery judgment. We see this throughout scripture, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament examples and, and foretellings of God redeeming his people. Right from the earliest pages of the book of Genesis where Noah is in a world that is increasingly evil, it says that the whole world was just wicked. Everything they thought, everything they did was just increasingly wicked and God says enough. He tells, he pulls Noah, he, he plucks him out and sends a flood to, to restart, to destroy everything that has life and has breath. But he preserves Noah and he tells him that and he's faithful to his covenant. He gives Noah everything he needs. He gives him, the, gives him the wood, the strength, the stamina, brings the animals his way to start over. He pulls them out of the destruction. Or what about when Abraham has no descendants at all? Doesn't even have any kids. He doesn't even have hope of having kids, him and his wife. And God makes him a promise that he will have indeed a son and he'll have descendants and he'll become a nation. And through, the, through their family, God will bless the whole world. But they have no kids. That's impossible. But what we see is that through history, through, through time, God reveals and he's faithful to his covenant. And as they're fleeing from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah that is burning up with fiery judgment, God spares them once again. And they receive the blessing. Or what about Moses who's singled out him and his brother Aaron to lead the nation of Israel out from the captivity, the, the, the slavery they're in for centuries in the country of Egypt. Through Moses, God rescues his people once again. And once they're rescued, God gives his people the law, which is another way by which his people can be saved. They can be made right from the throes of their sin. They can receive forgiveness. 
Not a full and ultimate and final forgiveness. We'll see that that comes through the person of Jesus. But all of these things are a foretaste of God's once and for all eventual deliverance for sin, for the penalty of our sin for me and for you. My point is simply this, is that sinners, you and me, have rightfully deserved, we've rightfully earned ourselves a a one-way ticket from God's separation to eternal torment and destruction where we receive the, the due punishment given to us for our sins. Again, because of God's goodness, because of his holiness, because of his set-apartedness. But it's his infinite grace and his mercy that also buys us back. When you place your fear in the Lord, he will buy you back from your destruction in that cleft of his own heart. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's children, we exchange all of our fears, all of our fears on this side of eternity for one single great magnificent fear who is Jesus. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ for by grace you have been saved. Because of God's goodness, he is gracious. So wherein God looks upon you and me, our despicable sin, he reaches in, he spares us from its terrifying consequences, namely the separation from him. And he invites us back into a life with him because he is good. We've been made alive through Christ. So there's a little bit about God's goodness, which answers the question, why should we fear God? But the question still needs to be answered. How do we fear God? How do we do this? If you've ever had Christian conversations with friends or with people you go to church with, they'll say, I I just want to love God. I don't want to fear him. He's supposed to be good. And why would I be afraid of him? How do we fear God? You can imagine for for a moment, if you can imagine that you live in centuries and centuries ago in um, in in a world with castles and kings and queens in a medieval kind of world, and you're a peasant in your filthy rags, and you have a request for the king, you'll, you'll, with fear and trembling, approach the castle, if they even let you in at all. But suppose you have your moment with the king. As you approach that throne, you will fear and tremble, making your request before the king. You're not even clean. You're in your, you're in your rags. You have nothing. You're hungry and you're empty. But imagine, though, that that king is your dad. He's your father. You still approach the, the throne, the, the throne room with that same level of fear and trepidation and, and awe and reverence. But if the king is for you, if the king loves you, well, that's a different thing altogether, isn't it? If you know that the king is good, it will change your approach. And God is good. I think, though, there's, there's wrong ways to fear. One author calls it a sinful kind of fear. And there's more, but I'll, I'll mention two of them. There's sort of two, two errors I think we can make. And the first is where we run and hide. My, my in-laws have this picture from when their kids were young. And my, my, he's now my brother-in-law, but he had done something. And I wasn't there, so I don't know what happened, but he had done something. And so he was up in his room hiding. And his parents went up to, to, to talk with him and to, to sort it out and to make the wrong right. And they get to his room and they just had to stop and go get the camera and take a picture because sometimes kids 
do the most incredible things. And so they're in his room and they see a bed and a shelf and a dresser and a oddly shaped pile of clothes. And they stop and took a picture because on the top of this pile of clothes is a beach ball. But the beach ball has these sections with different colors and two of the colors are clear. And so in that pile of clothes is a little boy who's lined up the clear pieces of the, of the balloon, of the ball, and is staring through with this shy grin on his face, hoping that he won't be seen. And the picture is priceless. I wish you could see it. But I got to tell you, sometimes when we hide from God, we're, we're, like, we're like that little boy who's, who's ashamed of what he's done, ashamed of what she's done. But we think that God don't, doesn't know and God won't find out. But I need to tell you, if you're hiding from God, please stop. God can't be fooled. You can't hide from the Lord Almighty. Amen. That's one error we can make. And Adam makes that mistake right after they sin, they fall, they, 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 they've given to temptation. The first thing that the, the next, very next words are that they were suddenly aware, their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so the next thing they do is they sew together clothes and they cover themselves up and no sooner does that happen than they, as they hear God's footsteps through the garden. God's coming to have a little chat with them. And they run and they hide. And Adam tells God, I heard you coming. I was afraid, and so I hid. Don't hide from your shame. Don't hide from your guilt. I think the second or a second error, an erroneous way, a sinful way to fear the Lord, isn't to run and hide, but is what I call the Jesus is my homeboy approach. When I was in middle school, someone thought it was, maybe he was a Christian, I don't know, but he thought it was good marketing to put it on hats and shirts, Jesus is my homeboy. And what it, what it, what it was in trying to do was to send out a message that I'm a Christian, like look at my shirt, I love Jesus, we're, we're homies, we're cool. But that couldn't be further from the fear of the Lord that the Bible prompts us to. We ought not dare to approach God with a cavalier, lackadaisical, homeboy kind of approach. You and God aren't, aren't buddies. You don't just hang out with the Lord. You don't approach him casually. That could not be further from the truth. Listen to what happens in the book of Exodus. When Moses is leading God's people, they come to the base of Mount Sinai where Moses is about to go commune with God, have a little meeting. God tells Moses, I'm gonna come down and you're gonna come up and I'm gonna put a, put a layer of clouds so that no one below can see above and you can't from the top see down. He says, I'm about to do this but I want you to gather your people, consecrate yourselves, get ready because you're about to have a meeting with me. So he draws the people together and they prepare themselves. They cleanse themselves. They offer sacrifices. They make themselves right. There's even, it even says, don't, don't have sexual relations, like purify yourselves, get ready to meet the Lord. There are boundaries. He says, no one should come near the mountain. No one should think of touching the mountain. If they do, they will surely die. And so there the people of Israel are waiting for Moses. He's gone up and he comes back down and he, and he speaks on behalf of God to the people. And it says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. God is not your homeboy. They stood far off and said to Moses, please speak to us. You speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. Meanwhile, the people then stood far off and Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. 
Many times they were afraid even of Moses because his face radiated just from communion with God. His face was glowing. They were terrified. Not that they saw God, but that they saw someone who saw God. My point is simply this. You need to prepare yourself. How do you prepare yourself when you pray to God? How do you prepare yourself when you come to church? Do you prepare yourself? What's your posture of approaching the throne room of God? Is it one of casual indifference or is it of trepidation? C.S. Lewis in the same book also talks about the, the, the quote of Mr. Beaver is he says, if anyone uh, um, approaches Aslan without their knees knocking, he says he's either braver than most or he's just outright silly. You should fear and tremble at the presence of the almighty God. But if you found safety in the cross, the way to fear God isn't to run away from that, is to do the opposite and run to the God who has saved you. It's to come to God like that peasant with nothing, with your filth and your sin to be undone and to be overwhelmed and to be struck with awe and amazement at God's goodness, his grace and his mercy and in humble obedience to fall at his feet in worship because he's a God who's good and he loves you. Those are two wrong kinds of fear, I think. And there's many right examples of fear in the scriptures. I'll mention one of them here for us now. It's in Luke chapter seven. I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn there. Luke chapter seven. If if right fear elicits joy and delight, it'll never be a duty. It'll never be a burden to fear the Lord. There's great joy. There's great peace. There's great safety and there's great security in the presence of God that you'll find nowhere else. In Luke chapter seven, we see a a, a telling of of a dinner party where a Pharisee named Simon asks Jesus to come over for a meal. And the Pharisee asked him to, to eat with him in, in the Pharisee's home. And so, so they do this. And while they're eating the meal, uh, an unexpected and an uninvited guest shows up. As they're reclining, it says that a woman came in, a woman from the city, and she was a sinner. And so she interrupts this dinner party and, and these men, these, these Pharisees who are, you know, they look, they look the part, their lives look put together, their homes are probably nice. They had money. And Jesus and his disciples are there. This woman comes in and she begins to weep. She She places herself right at the feet of Jesus and she begins to weep. And with her tears falling on the feet of Jesus, his feet get soaked and she begins to wash his feet with her hair, her filthy hair. And she brought with her a flask of oil and she begins to anoint the feet of Jesus, of King Jesus there in that dinner. You can imagine if you were there, this this would be an interruption, maybe a little strange. Simon would have been feeling a little bit embarrassed probably. And Simon has a thought. He thinks to himself, says Simon, the the one who had invited him to come in and eat, said to himself in his head, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. He had this thought in his mind, but Jesus being God couldn't be fooled. And so Jesus answers him out loud. He might've wondered, oops, did did I say that out loud? No, you didn't. But Jesus heard it. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then Simon says, teacher, say it. What do you have to say to me? 
Then Jesus tells a parable, as he often does. It goes like this. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was about a day's wage for a, a, a worker, which means that 500 denarii would have been about a year and a half's wages, while 50 denarii would have been about a month and a half's wages. When they could not pay, the money lender canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? This is an easy question. The answer is right here on the floor. Simon said to him, the one I suppose for whom he canceled a larger debt. Bingo. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Which of the two feared the Lord? How do you know? Between Simon and the woman, who loved the Lord? The answer is simple. It's, it's the one who is forgiven of much. How much have you been forgiven? Worship is your heart's overjoyed response. It's the fireworks in your soul to God's grace and goodness. And so if that's your heart's response, how are you gonna worship? How much, according to God's grace, his goodness and his mercy, have you been forgiven? I've been forgiven a lot. I'm, I'm this woman in the story, in this scene. I'm the one in the parable whose debt was 500 denarii, 5 million denarii. In closing, as children of God, we don't, we don't fear God because of what he can do to us. We fear God because of what he's done for us. We fall to our knees like this woman and we, we serve the Lord. We repent of our sins and we follow him because of what he's done for us. So it means we submit to him. It means we come to him, we don't run away, we submit to him and we don't fear what's out of our hands because we're in the hands of the Almighty. And the things we're afraid of are also in the hands of the almighty God. And it's only in his presence where all of our weaknesses and all of our fears, all of our concerns, all of our worries are at peace and we're safe right in the cleft of God's own heart. So in a moment, we'll take the Lord's table together. I wanna give us a few moments of thoughtful reflection and contemplation. And so behind me will be the words, the verses seven and eight of Psalm 130, which are kind of the, the full fulfillment of this forgiveness. So I ask you this question, how much have you been forgiven? Let's take some time together and still our hearts before the Lord.